Okay, before we get into it, a quick update from the Angle Homeschool Academy. Ainsley, Charlotte, how is school going? Good, right. Good, but, but we have a terrible teacher. <laughs> wow, that almost sounds rehearsed. You seriously have a bad teacher? Yep. Yeah. Who's your teacher? You. Oh, yeah, I figured. But we do have a cool additional student. We just got a new student this week. Who's that? A doggy. A doggy? How old? Ten weeks today, and today is Friday, not Tuesday. And what's her name? Rory. Rory. And what do you guys want to do right now? We want to go outside. Well, go for it. Get after it. And I suggest all of you do the same. Actually, listen to the podcast first, then go outside. This is A New Angle. And I'm your host, Justin Angle, marketing professor at the University of Montana College of Business. This podcast is my chance to speak with cool people doing awesome things in and around the great state of Montana. We are proudly underwritten by First Security Bank and Blackfoot. Hey, folks, welcome back, and thanks for tuning in today. Uh, before we get to our weekly COVID collab panel, I've got special guest star Meg Witcher here. Meg, one of my absolute favorite Missoulians, who's got to be experiencing some wild emotions knowing that that one of her, one of the most important parts of her job is um, had to be canceled. So, Meg, welcome to the show. Uh, great to hear your voice. Hey, Justin, how's it going? Thanks for having me. I mean, this is normally the time of year where, I mean, you're engaged in so many programs that help such a wide variety of people, but the, the derailers program in particular, I know is, is, is special to your heart. Yeah. I mean, it's, I, I run programs year round and for multitudes of populations and sports, but derailers is my heart. And we had to, uh, we announced today, I mean, I knew it was coming that we were going to have to go ahead and cancel the, uh, the spring season. We had initially, moved it back from starting in April to starting in May. Mm -hmm. And, you know, just based on health guidelines and, and kind of the current climate of everything, um, Parks and Recreation decided that we're not going to be doing any programming until um, after Memorial Day. Yeah, that seems like just a fair assessment of reality. Um, and one of the things, Meg, I wanted to talk to you about is, you know, recurring in this podcast, we talk you know, we sort of try to, there's a lot of heavy stuff we talk about, but we also try to talk about things we're hopeful about and excited about. And one of the, the feelings that just comes up over and over again for me is how fortunate we are to live where we live, to be able to get out into open space, to recreate, to get into the fresh air, to share the trails. Um, but that's an activity that kind of comes with some responsibility at this moment. You want to, uh, sort of talk about, uh, how folks can can get outside responsibly and, and and not ruin it for everyone else, if that makes sense. <laughs> sure, totally. Um, you know, much like yourself, both personally and professionally, uh, access to both our formal built parks and our open space trails and and conservation lands areas has always been like a vital part of who I am as a human being, both personally and professionally. Um, and in the time of COVID, uh, it's, it's become the source of like solace and where people are going to, to, to feel better, um, in greater scales than we've ever seen before, um, land managers, you know, across the Missoula Valley and across Montana really, um, are, are seeing such a, a drastic increase of use of public open spaces, trails and parks. Um, so it's not just Missoula, it's, it's statewide right now. And, uh. What we're seeing is that, you know, we're we're all very anxious right now and we all have not all of us. A lot of us have a lot more time on our hands. Um, and what do we like to do with that? I mean, we're Montanans. We want to be outside with that time. But we're seeing with that increased use, we're seeing that people are are struggling to figure out a how do we social distance while recreating being outside? B is it okay for me to be doing this? And then see, okay, I've figured out how to social distance, but now my behavior is directly negatively impacting the land. And so a lot of land managers, Missoula Parks and Recreation and different agencies across the state are trying to figure out how to message to, uh, to kind of address each one of those things. Yeah. And you and your, your colleagues, I mean, the, the, the messaging out at the trailheads, I think, is, is particularly clear and compelling. 
Uh, the trailheads themselves are probably one of the higher risk areas because, the, you know, as you said, more people are out. That puts um, demands on the parking resources, but that's also kind of where you're you're seeing the most density. How, how are you thinking about trailheads in particular right now? So, you know, I kind of look at this in, in, in phases. In phase one of this, no one knew what was going on and we all were still kind of, I was still going out running with my girlfriends and thinking, oh, not, you know, like I'm social distancing, it's fine. Um, phase two has been, a, a drastic increase in kind of gathering at trailheads. We're now kind of more in like phase three. And what we're seeing is that people are figuring out the trailhead situation, but what they're not figuring out is when they're in parks and when they're actually out on the land away from the trailhead um, is kind of where we're at current live data. <laughs> um, yeah. And what are you, I mean, when you're talking about what they're figuring out, out on the trail, you're, you're talking about like just the density of traffic on the trails is people aren't managing that quite well or figured out how to yet. Um, I think that's, that's number one, the density on the trails. We're seeing a great, a great increase in density. We're seeing first time trail users like we've never seen before. And then also people um, when they're social distancing on the trails, like there's like, we're being told six feet. Um, instead of just stepping to the side of the trail and stopping in place, people are running and riding their bikes extremely off trail, going 60 feet off trail, creating user trails, damaging all the spring native plants that are in bloom in these like highly protected conservation areas um, and doing some real um, damage to our conservation lands right now. Um, creating user trails is really what we're seeing. So increased traffic, we're obviously seeing increased of, you know, people leaving their dog poop around, um, increased garbage at the trailhead, increased cars. But what we're really most concerned about, um, not most concerned about, but what we're really looking at as well is like the behavior once you're actually on the trail. And but that's OK, because we've got an easy fix, right? The easy fix isn't don't go out. The easy fix is one. Like, think about what time of day you're going out to recreate. Right now, our highest use times are after 4 p.m., period. And not only that, it's spring. And so that's when trails are more melted out, when things have had time to thaw, so they're muddier. So after 4 p.m., if you can get in that recreation time sometime in the morning, that's a better time to go. If you go to a trailhead and there's a lot of cars or it's very hard to park, or you're the last car parking, go somewhere else. If you go there and there's no parking, go home and walk from your house. Like, make some choices to protect our land. And then finally, once you're out on the trail, once you're there and you see another person coming towards you, uphill always has the right of way. Look up, be present, smile, have a nice interaction with the person as they're coming towards you. Step off the trail, get off your bike, stop moving. You don't need to go 60 feet. You can just go right off the trail, but stop moving, allow the person to pass, and then continue on on your way. So the solutions are there. We just need to all get there together. Yeah, and I think, too, within that is like people – you know, people have a different sort of risk tolerance. People have different sort of acceptance or understanding of social norms and different levels of compassion. And I think that within that, Meg, we can all have more compassion. We can all just sort of understand that we're in this together. And if we, and if we love the resource too much or we think of it as ours as individuals, that's a really risky proposition and we're, we're, we're going to we're going to end up degrading the resource that we value so much. I think that's so well said. And, you know, I, I, I walk this tightrope of, of being an avid, most people in the, in the recreation world lean one of which ways they're either super land conservation minded, like the land for the land itself, or they're super mm -hmm. recreation minded in that, like, this land is great. We want to conserve it for recreation. And people fall somewhere on that spectrum. I'm in the position both personally and professionally that I really feel passionately about both equally. You know, I run recreation programs and 
my goal out of that is to create our future land stewards to love and take care of our land, to make sure that, you know, the, the balsam root that's in, in bloom right now is there for me mm-hmm. and for my kids and for the future to see when they're on a trail run, you know, and right now we just, we need to, we need to figure out how to make that happen during COVID. Can you speak, I guess you got a couple more questions, Meg. Can you speak to, um, people's choices with regard to risk you know not all forms of outdoor recreation are equal in terms of risk and you know taking on unnecessarily risk that could end up getting you hurt or could end up having to require search and rescue resources or or things like that those are things that could put undue stress on uh, medical and other resources that are in, in dire need right now Yeah. I thought it was so interesting when our governor of Montana put his official directive out, he directly spoke to that. In fact, I made like a a quippy social media post. I was like, oh, does our governor know us or what? He was talking about backcountry skiing. Right Right. now we're in spring, the, the shoulder season. It's high water. And so this is when a lot of people are starting to get out whitewater rafting. It's like we're fringing on lock saw season right now. It's also avid backcountry skiing conditions because the, the snowpack is finally firming up long spring backcountry days in the missions. I mean, that's how I usually spend my spring. Mm -hmm. And, you know, we have, you know, paragliders off of Mount Jumbo. We have people, you know, building jumps and on their bikes. Um, you know, we really have to take a firm look and, and a real, we have to take like a real global look at how, when, and what we're doing to recreate right now to take care of the entire community. And it's really hard because in Montana, especially I've found we are so passionate about our personal recreation interests and goals that sometimes it's hard to take ourselves out of that um, in order to think of the greater good. And so what the governor's asking and what a lot of organizations are really standing behind is that it, it is deemed as a higher risk activity and if you're confused about what you're doing, being higher risk, feel free to shoot me an email and I can clarify. You know, for example, I have been road biking a lot. I'm choosing to road bike right now over mountain bike because the trails are so busy and they're muddy right now. I love mountain biking more than anything else, but I'm making that personal choice to road bike. When I'm hitting a descent, a really steep descent, I'm going slower than I ever have before. So thinking about each one of those decisions that we're making and the risks we're putting ourselves in while recreating so we don't put a greater strain on our medical system is something that we really need to be thinking about as well. Absolutely. Dialing it back, I think, is a good rule of thumb in general, not taking any undue risks and being respectful and compassionate with others. Meg, uh, I want to let you go, but I got to kind of just bring up one final issue I don't know who gave you the title recreation program supervisor, but we got to fix that. We need a better title for you. We need a better title than that. Minister of fun, something, ministress of fun. I don't know, something uh, more creative and reflective of your awesomeness. Uh, Oh, I really appreciate that. It's uh, maybe fun hog. How about that? Fun hog. Chief fun hog. I like that. That's like a C-level executive. Chief fun. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Chief fun hog. Let's let's, let's do that. Chief fun hog. I like that. Okay. Well, Meg, thanks for stopping by the podcast. Thanks for all you do for our community. Thanks for having me. Absolutely. For our community, (laughs) for the resource, and for our kids and everybody else. Um, Hey, man. Happy spring. It's going to be beautiful there this weekend. And, uh, you know, I I can't wait for us all to be together out on the trails and in parks again. Likewise. Thanks a lot, Meg. We'll uh, we'll see you soon. Bye. Okay. So looks like it's a good moment to transition to our panel. I see Bryce, Grant, and Susan out there. Welcome to all of you. I'm going to trust that you can hear me. Can you can you confirm they can hear me? Yes, loud and clear. Roger. I can. Sounds good. Okay, we're ready to go, folks. I mean, we got our rhythm. <laughs> nice. And as Meg, Meg might hang around a while, she might have some some questions for for all of us. We'll see how we go, but. Um, yeah, so we're we're at like I don't know week five of this uh, COVID collab um, deal, and I think we're uh, starting to get a bit a little bit better understanding of kind of the epidemiological situation we're in. Uh, some of the modeling, at least the modeling I've been looked at, looking at, looks a little bit more favorable 
to Montana in particular, um, that, you know, we're going to be able to avoid some of the worst and be able to, to, um, handle a surge that's within the capacity of the healthcare system. I don't know, Bryce, is that consistent with, um, with what you're looking at across the state? Um, yeah, I mean, Montana's thus far uh, has done relatively well. Uh, obviously, what's happening in Toole County is not great. Right. And that's kind of the nature of this thing, right, is it's it's hot in certain spots. And so it's hard to say that, oh, yeah, you've beat it because it can spike real fast. Like, you're, you know, or what's happening in, in South Dakota is – uh, you know, and in Rhode Island, because they're both kind of spiking up currently. Uh, and so, yeah, the national picture looks relatively good. And Montana has thus far, at least, avoided having a widespread super fast outbreak. We've, you know, if you look at the graphs that have all the different states on them, we definitely are one of the flatter lines. Uh, and that's good. But it doesn't mean that it's somehow the disease has gone away. Uh, it's still out there and we've got to be vigilant in trying to keep it from exploding because when it explodes, it frequently explodes very quickly. Yeah, that's for sure. And you know how we, it's the first kind of case in um, or case study in, in Washington state of how it just devastated that retirement home. Um, yeah, we certainly want to avoid that. There's some signs of something like that happening. I think it was in a meat packing plant in South Dakota yep. where you 700 know, people, yeah, nearly half the state's cases attributable to one employer. Um, so yeah, you know, this is a message that at least what I, my takeaway is that a lot of what we're doing and the, the, the strict measures we're taking, the sacrifices we're making are, are, are working, but at the same time, we got to stay vigilant, and it's it's you know re- reopening as they're calling it is is a problematic concept, and we'll talk about that today. Um, Want to shift to you, Grant? I mean, we're we're a few weeks into the sort of implementation of the CARES Act. What you got your finger on the pulse of the business community? What is the sentiment out there right now? Yeah, I think. Um... At least as of recording this podcast, we are at a, a strange inflection point in anxiety, I think. I mm-hmm. think we had this first wave of folks who were able to get in and get uh, approved for their SBA loans through the PPP program or the emergency assistance loans. And a lot of those folks felt like that went compared to what it was expected pretty smoothly. I think Bryce has commented uh, this week in other venues about the success that our banks have had in terms of implementing those programs. But just as we started to see um, guidance coming out on how those programs would impact our sole proprietors, smaller businesses, um, the funds all ran out of money, the the programs ran out of money. So right now we've got this bottleneck back in DC and we're really struggling, really struggling to help people have the confidence that this program is going to be the safety that they need to to weather what they think is the right amount of time to get us past what what Bryce is talking about as that inflection point in the health crisis so that we're ready to be back at work down the road. And do we know the nature of the bottleneck, Grant? Well, I think um, part of this was just that the scale and intensity of need was much greater than probably anticipated. And so it just simply wasn't enough funding. One of the bottlenecks is really that the way that the program has been set up and the way the rules were managed just before the programs were released was a, a real challenge to banks where there was more risk put on the banks than I think many expected. So mm. the preferential and the, the expedient way to get the money out the door was with people with whom they already had lending relationships. So that put people who didn't already borrow for their businesses in a difficult position to have access to some of these funds. So both of those things right now, the lack of funding, the lack of having an existing relationship with a lender and the the sort of failure of Washington to figure out how do we create the next tranche of funding to do the relief we need to do. Uh, those three things are combining right now to put a lot of stress on a lot of people. Yeah. And, um, you know, we sort of saw some of these problems coming, so it's not surprising uh, to hear some of these stories, although that, that doesn't make it any easier. Uh, Susan, let's bring you into the conversation. Are, are, I know that nonprofits can get in on the action to some degree with some of these lending programs and relief programs. Uh, are you seeing and hearing from your colleagues some of the same dynamics that uh, that Grant is describing? 
Uh, absolutely. It's, um, it's one of the pain points the nonprofit sector is feeling. Um, first of all, I think a general unfamiliarity with applying hmm. for a program like this. Um, and then uh, some of us who bank with larger financial institutions have not uh, had success in getting through the process. I have my meeting after this call is to ascertain the status of United Way of Missoula County's application for PPP, which has been, uh, frankly, it's kind of a long and difficult process that we didn't really expect. Um, but, but a number of my colleagues have reported that uh, their requests have been approved and that gives them some breathing room in a very uncertain time. And so that's terrific. Yeah, Susan, without necessarily naming names or putting anybody out, um, can you talk a little bit about the difficulty of that process? Like how how, how onerous yeah, and rigor, like what, there's probably a balance between, you know, red tape and rigor. Um, how are you finding it in practice? I'm going to name my next band Red Tape and Rigor. That's pretty good. Yeah, that was just off the cuff. <laughs> That's good. That's good. Uh, it, almost as good as Fun Hog. Yeah. Um, I think it, it seems to me, that the smaller banks are doing a better job. I guess that's what all I will say. Mm -hmm. That maybe the larger financial institutions that uh, have always made sense for a large organization to bank with uh, had had more uh, red tape and more hurdles to jump through. Um, I, I don't really know the reason why, but it's it's uh, it's been a bit of a slog for us. Well, I am sorry to hear that, and I can only think for for other folks that that are in your position that maybe don't have the uh, the capacity or the diligence or the patience or the positive attitude like you do, Susan, could be really banging their head against the wall. Um, Bryce, do you have a perspective on on this kind of some of this bottleneck dynamics we're talking about? Yeah, so the small bank thing appears to be. I mean, I can only speak correlationally, not causally, but and anecdotally. But so anecdotally smaller banks did a better job with this. And then if you look at the data that the SBA put out earlier this week, which didn't get to the 100% when it got fully subscribed two days ago, but was when it 70% had been allocated. And if you look at the number of community banks per small business, and then the share of small businesses that got loans, the correlation is quite stark. Hmm. So places and small banks tend to be concentrated, you know, so it's the plain states, uh, and Montana does pretty well. Um, we we did rank tenth in our rate of obtaining PPP loans, um, but it's this kind of swath that basically starts in Oklahoma and moves up through the Dakotas and over into Montana and over into Minnesota. And you know they basically dominated the PPP program, and they also do have much higher rates of community banks. So I don't know if it's causal or not, but it certainly is suggestive that for this particular program. Uh, places that had that community small bank relationship, certainly uh, it paid off in this case. I mean, that resonates anecdotally with what we heard from Scott last week, as far as the kind of attitude with which his, his team, his team members are approaching, helping, you know, the people in the community, they, they, they know and do business with on their own. I don't know if that's too rosy a picture, um, but Bryce associated with that analysis you're talking about, you, you were kind of prolific on Twitter this week, breaking down kind of where some of this money is going. You want to speak uh, to some of the highlights of, of your analysis there? Yeah. So the SBA put out this PDF of a PowerPoint that they sent to Congress. And I was like, well, I can copy that data out and I can download the Small Business Administration data on how many small businesses are. Because small businesses for purposes of the PPP loans, at least for the first wave, was employer businesses with fewer than 500 employees per establishment. And so, oh, well, that's easy to obtain. So uh, I broke it down both by state and by industry. And those they go together, I think. But the industries that were, quote unquote, the winners, i.e., they got a higher share of the loans than you would have expected had they just been uniformly allocated, uh, were things like ag and mining and manufacturing and accommodation and food service. And so, you know, that's, I think, relatively good for Montana. We did rank 10th yeah. amongst all states. Um, but, you know, it's there are some industries that have probably been, you know, and in some industries they're probably low because 
maybe they don't need them as much. Um, mm-hmm. They're still, you know, there are industries where your people are probably still operating at home, uh, like, you know, professional services and things like that. But, you know, things like healthcare, which surprisingly have been, which I think it's not, not surprising when you really think about it, but surprising when you think about it on your first instinct, which is, of, well, hi, of course, healthcare should be really busy right now. But healthcare is a face-to-face service industry. And if you're not dealing with the crisis, you're probably not seeing too many patients uh, frequently by decree. And so there, there have been wide layoffs in healthcare. And, you know, healthcare did not do maybe as well as uh, some of the other industries which have been hard hit. But, you know, that's what we're seeing, at least uh, to date. Um, it will be interesting when we get at least to the full 100% to see how it gets allocated. And then assuming that Congress does what it should do and put more money into the program, if some of the places that have been left behind catch up. Yeah. And Grant, how does that kind of, you know, Bryce has kind of got his head around the data there. How's that ground truth with with what you're seeing and hearing within the partnership? Well, maybe what I could uh, partly share as an insight, but mostly ask as a question of Bryce is that I know that as we have shifted our economy in Montana away from more traditional industries and healthcare and toward things like tech, one of the challenges of people have found in terms of access to capital is that many tech companies tend to be um, high on personnel and staff costs and low on fixed infrastructure and assets. And I wonder, Bryce, if, if you could, maybe not through the data, but if you think that 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 setting, that grouping of data you talked about are really industries that are traditionally pretty heavy on fixed assets against which it's easy to understand what risk you're taking if you give a loan. And I I guess looking globally at what we've just talked about, we're seeing people have easy access to loans when they have really close relationships and easier access to loans when they have a lot of fixed assets is what we're really looking at here is banks want to avoid risk and uncertainty. And so they're traditionally, or they're giving to lending to those institutions that have traditionally been easiest to lend to and and maybe what's being what's suffering right now as the sole proprietor who has not got that lending relationship or the small tech companies that might have fewer fixed assets against which the bank can have the confidence it can recoup any losses. A new angle is brought to you by First Security Bank and Blackfoot, two cool companies doing awesome things all over Montana. This is Cameron Lawrence, MIS professor in the College of Business, and you're listening to A New Angle. Well, I go, so that may be part of it. The other part of it is if I've never had to borrow money, I don't have that relationship, Mm -hmm. right? And that's, I think that's, that story I've heard more than any other, right, is I may have had a banking relationship with you, but I did not have a debt relationship with you. And I got shoved to the back of the line. And to the extent that I'm a business or an industry that doesn't use much traditional bank debt, they probably were disfavored. And we see that. Like information has a very, very low rate of obtaining PPP loans. But so does arts and entertainment. Because I can't imagine that a lot of, you know, artists have, been getting lots of traditional bank loans. Mm-hmm. Um, and so, yeah, I mean, I, I think that as a social capital research, researcher, you know, and somebody who used to work at a community bank, you know, this was the story that we always told ourselves, right? We were here to serve people and we had these relationships. And because of these relationships, you know, you could do things that other people couldn't. And that we're seeing that. That's basically what this is, right? Is PPP, at least the first wave, yeah, I'm guessing when we dive into it and do the research will basically be a, a relationship story. If you had a good relationship with the bank, particularly one that was built around them, them loaning you money and you repaying it, uh, you got first in line, you got your money and everything went pretty smoothly. If you were somebody who was like, I've never gotten a loan from you before, but you have my bank account, uh, maybe things didn't go as smoothly for you. And I think part of what Susan is saying is also true when you're dealing with a big bank that's not as relational, right? That's a bureaucracy. It runs on rigorous rules and formulas and, you know, kind of a rigorous process that doesn't move as swiftly. You probably also got a little bit 
towards the back of the line, at least getting out of your bank and into the treasury. And so, you know, in my social capital class that I taught at the university this semester, we talk about relationships as means to solving problems. And I think in this case, when there was a scarce resource of money available from the treasury, relationship probably explains a lot of it. But hopefully Congress puts some more money in and soon so that uh, it doesn't become the determining factor of uh, what businesses get to survive in our economy. Susan, you have a response to that? Yeah, I think that's really interesting because I think it reflects our experience. We have a $100,000 line of credit that we haven't accessed in over two years. <laughs> Maybe that didn't help us. Um, but I definitely, what you're saying, Bryce, really resonates with and, and comports with our experience in this process. We're optimistic still, but, um, and we certainly aren't as in desperate straits as many other nonprofits, but this would be an important boost at a critical time for us. So yeah. thanks for the insights. And when you're thinking about, you know, the, the dynamics that Grant placed in there with, with risk and, and, and so forth, and these relationships. I mean, some of these nonprofits, I mean, it's got to be really even hard for a bank to assess the risk. They, they probably haven't ever, ever looked at it in, in, in that way before. So kind of off the map as far as, as figuring out how to make these loans, unfortunately. And I guess that's the, the case that I might make, or maybe a question for Bryce is, is there something that could be done with these programs to make it clearer to the banks were a great vehicle to deliver money fast. And I don't know that the SBA on their own could have ever done as much as quickly as the banks did by getting involved and using the private sector as a vehicle. I think that was a pretty wise approach. What I wonder is if the programs could do a better job of clarifying or absorbing more risk at the federal level so that these banks have a little more liberty to take some more risk and get money into the smaller business owners' hands or those who don't have loans in the past so that we can see a, a better delivery of this resource across the board to small businesses in our community. Yeah, I mean, I think that was, well, I don't know what the reasoning behind some of the rules that they ended up shoving on at the last minute were. Um, I think maybe there was some you know, oh, we're being responsible with people's money kinds of things with it. But to the extent that it favored some people and disfavored other people, I'm guessing that was not the intent. So hopefully they are learning. Uh, and as we hopefully refund the program, uh, people are going to understand the trade-offs and do a well, if they're going to put these kind of restrictions on, they do so in a way that is at least justified by the benefits versus the cost. Because like we started talking about, you know, way back at the very first one of these, the, the goal of the program is to kind of keep our productive capacity alive, you know, put us in the coma, so to speak, uh, so that we can come out of this without having to rebuild things, which takes a long time and then leaves lots of people unemployed for a lot longer than we would otherwise have them be. So uh, hopefully we can figure out how to, you know, make the program work a little bit more efficiently uh, as we go forward. And so, you know, let's talk about next program. So we sort of mentioned that the money's running out and that it's time for Congress to act and hopefully they can act sooner than later. Grant, from your seat, what would you want to see in, in the next round of, um, of legislation? What, what were some things maybe missing in, in, in the CARES Act that you'd like to see or some extensions? What, what, would be, what has to be in the next round of legislation in your mind? Well, I think some of the things that are certainly front and center are the issues we've talked about already. I think the lack of access to these programs that existed for the sole proprietor and the small business owner. And frankly, the, you know, I think some of, we talked about the bear program that got up and running a week ago, as those folks have worked through these programs with some people, I think there's some honest questions about whether or not going through these rigorous and complicated programs is in fact more beneficial to a sole proprietor than just direct aid through a program like unemployment that is generous enough to help them survive this period rather than trying to keep a very small business intact. I don't think we have the answer to that, but I think it's a justified question right now. Um, I think one of the 
big lingering or looming questions for me as, as we start to wrestle now as a community with what a roadmap might look like to go from where we are today to a world in which we restore some of our normal activities at a slower pace, but start to restore some activity in terms of economic activity, social activity, what's often referred to as a phase two response. Mm -hmm. um, it's not clear we're going to get to that place within eight weeks of a lot of businesses starting these programs to do that safely and effectively and responsibly. And so I think the other question for us is, uh, is Congress willing and ready to extend the life of that window over which we're providing the life support to those companies and the forgiveness period? Because I think if we don't do that, we're going to see a, a tremendous amount of pressure to reopen our economy and our businesses, maybe faster than it would be prudent to do so from a health perspective. Yeah, that's kind of a, actually, before we move to reopening, uh, Bryce or Susan, do you have any kind of ideas for this next round of legislation that you'd, you'd like to see or you know, have to be in there? Susan, I see that you've, you've got your hand up. What do you think? about the fact that 501c6 organizations weren't eligible and our tourist tourism groups okay like hey can you i don't mean to interrupt but just distinguish a 50136 oh, for, for us what's uh, that How's more that like a, 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 a oh so you know now you're asking me tax questions uh, <laughs> rice Bryce, where are you, my yeah, man? Where's your lifeline? So this this is Grant. We are a 501c6. So having so, run a 501c6 versus a 501c3, we're a membership organization organized in part to promote the goals and objectives of our member entities, the business community that we serve. So it's slightly yeah, different. what Grant said. Okay. Clear as mud. They're, they're more like almost like trade organizations rather right. than charitable nonprofits, but uh, as you know, in our economy, tourism organizations, for example, like Destination Missoula, Glacier Country Tourism, play uh, a huge role in our state's economy. And, and I believe that a lot of them have laid off people and furloughed people and they, they need help as well. That's something I would, I would love to see. Absolutely. Bryce, your thoughts? Um, state and local government is the big thing that needs help. Mm -hmm. uh, state and local government employs more people currently than manufacturing ever has. Uh, it is a huge portion of our economy. And to the extent that it is hobbled and is furloughing people or laying people off or shuttering programs, uh, that's going to create a lot of headwind for the economy as it tries to hopefully get started at some point. Uh, so that's the big missing thing that hasn't already been discussed by Susan or Grant. Yeah. And you made the, the point uh, a few episodes back, Bryce, that, that a key distinction between state and lo local government and federal government is that federal government is kind of the only type of government that has the capacity to borrow uh, at that kind of scale. So yeah, making that relief kind of function down through the ranks of government is key. Uh, Susan, additional thoughts? Just that, to Bryce's point, that nonprofits function best when we are partners with government in, in all things. And uh, if anything good comes out of this pandemic, one of the things I would hope for is seeing government restore its historic role in, in looking after folks and uh, letting nonprofits be partners, but not the front line of defense. So... Let's pivot to kind of this concept of of reopening, for lack of a better term. Uh, I, mean, I sort of have a feeling that someday we're going to see a tweet from the president saying, you know, America's open for business again, and th th to sort of like turn the page. And we all know that that's a vast oversimplification, a dangerous one. Um, and particularly, you look at a state like Montana, we mentioned the public health data earlier in, in our conversation. It's actually looking fairly good. Um, yet we're, you know, mid to late April, and the traditional stream of the economy here in Montana is to really ramp up the tourist, tourism industry. You got a bunch of folks coming into the state to visit national parks, mountains, rivers, whatever. Bryce, if you were to sort of design an optimal plan for, for reopening Montana's economy, how would you, what would be some of your guiding principles and how would you draw it up? 
Well, so let's just stop with the phrase reopening. Okay. That's the first thing. Um, nothing closed the economy. No one closed the economy. We all collectively closed the economy. Fear closed the economy. So the only way that the economy goes back to operating and at some level is if we can manage people's fear because the virus is bad and it will spread. It will spread undetected and will eventually kill lots of people. Um, just to kind of put it in more traditional economic terms, right? So the most dangerous job in America, right? So being a deep sea fisherman, the deadliest catch people, Mm -hmm. right? Your odds of dying are in a, you know, so for per full-time worker uh, are six times lower than if you catch this virus. And I assume the lowest death rate that I've seen. Uh, so it's the danger of us interacting with each other as humans that has shut down the economy. Mm-hmm. And so the only way to reopen the economy, oh, there I did, I just did it. We must stop talking like this. The only way to get us active in the economy again is to make it so that the danger is less. And we can reduce that danger in two ways, right? So on one side, if we can get treatment so that the, the virus is less deadly, then our odds of dying, if we get it, go way down or go down substantially, then we can feel much better. And, you know, there's things which are out there, uh, which are being tested, which look encouraging. And so hopefully they continue to look encouraging and we can scale up production and that would be a big help, even if we never got to a vaccine. A vaccine obviously would be great as well. So if we don't have treatment and we don't have vaccine in terms of how do we go back into the world in a world where we're not so, you know, because no face-to-face service business can work if I'm afraid of being face-to-face with you because you might have a disease which could kill me. Um, uh, it, It doesn't work unless we can be very confident that if we're out in the world and interacting with each other, we're very unlikely to have the virus. And the only way to do that is with very extensive testing. And so until we see that testing is reliable and ramped up at a much, much greater scale than we have currently, it's going to be very difficult to get people to be willing to go back out into the world at a scale sufficient to allow businesses to survive. Let's talk about some of that testing. I mean, assuming we, we, it's a big assumption, but assuming you can get a testing capacity ramped up. I mean, there's talk of these um, tracking apps, Google and Apple are, are talking to about collaboration and, you know, Grant, let's turn it to you as somebody who's, you know, run for public office and thought about, um, you know, personal freedoms and the role of government how do you feel about uh, some of these kind of programs that kind of trade off our safety for our our, um, our privacy in some ways? Yeah, I think that's a great question and one I've personally been wrestling with because I consider myself somebody who is a champion of civil liberties. And I think the best uh, ethical discussions I've seen on this are that as we talk about restoring activities, I think we really need to be focused on a framework where people are given the option to opt into them. Mm. And I think, you know, Bryce talked about the need to feel safe again. I think different people, depending on their conditions and their level of vulnerability, will feel safe at different points in the process of restoring activity. And so if I am somebody who um, I personally have been through a really challenging year of health and I have some compromises in my lungs that mean that I am especially vulnerable to this. So I may be much less reluctant to go back to a normal life than somebody else in a phase two environment. And so I think a big part of this is understanding how we create systems and structures. And if we want to use tools like tracking devices, we give people a chance to opt in. If we want to encourage people to go back to work, we give them the opportunity to opt in until we really do have a framework and a setting in which there's a a baseline of safety that everybody can count on and feel good about. 
And so as, as we're talking about that, Susan, I'm thinking about some of our more vulnerable populations. I mean, these are not folks that have cell phones and smartphones that they can opt in to some tracking. I mean, they don't have that choice necessarily. And some of these folks are, are at the most risk of any of us. How do, how do we think about some of those vulnerable populations in our, um, in our effort to return to some new sense of normal? Right. I, I don't have the answers. I, I definitely, it's been on my mind that things like, you know, telemedicine works only if you have the equipment and access. And right. that, as we know, that's a real challenge in Montana. So again, as we start to look forward, I, I really hope we are starting to think about systems change and, and equity, um, which the pandemic has really brought into sharp relief that inequities in our system at, at, at virtually every level. So I wish I wish I had an answer, but um, I, I hope we get our arms around it as we move forward. Yeah, Bryce, any, any reflections on some of those trade-offs that we're, we're talking about? It's tough. Um, while software, obviously, if you carry a phone and it has all this stuff, it can be a very powerful tool for notifying you that you've become in contact with somebody who has tested positive. Uh, it still requires a lot of behavior in terms of both getting tested and then if somebody shows up that I've been in contact, then me being willing to actually quarantine myself. So I, it can be a tool. I just don't know how it's not, it's not going to solve the problem by itself, particularly because the polling I've seen suggests that more than half of Americans are uncomfortable with it. Um, so if more than half of Americans aren't willing to opt in to download your app and aren't going to participate, then it, it's a, there's a pretty big hole in that net. So, you know, that means that we've got to choose other means to trace because that's just the tracing part. There's mm -hmm. still the testing part that we have to get uh, more robust. And so, you know, you know, back to your original question of, well, what does it look like to go back to some levels of economic activity? And as Grant pointed out, that's, you know, we should give people freedom to do that at some point, you know, we don't need to be locking people up with official government orders. Uh, I just want to make sure that people understand that the government orders isn't what's driving the economic downturn. In fact, I saw some research yesterday, which suggests that the effect of them on either public health and or uh, the economy are very marginal. We had already shut down the economy before any states started really locking down. Uh, and so it's, it's really about how can we create that safety, that environment of, you know, feeling like, okay, I understand the risk. That's also a function of testing so that we actually understand how dangerous this disease is. And, you know, being able to give people the good information to say, okay, look, these are your odds of getting it. These are your odds of getting it in this community because it's, you know, been relatively isolated from other hotspots or whatever it is. Uh, so we want to give people more information so that they can go out and make good choices. Uh, and then we also need to figure out, you know, for stuff that's more critical uh, that we want to make sure keeps operating, we want to at least have discussions about how do we create, you know, bubbles, you know, where they can operate and do what they need to do uh, and still be isolated from the disease uh, in ways that, you know, work. And, you know, that's, um, that's what you're hearing talked about with say for, with like professional sports or whatever it is. Right. So like NBA might come back, but they'll just quarantine everybody in Las Vegas and then they'll play games in empty stadiums. And, you know, some of the support for that actually comes out of China where, you know, obviously in China, it's a much more authoritarian society, but they have for large projects, they'll just take tens of thousands of workers and they all live in a bubble and they go about doing the bubble job that they're in. And, you know, we may choose to do something like that as well. Yeah. A, a lot in there, Bryce. And as you're laying that out there, I mean, I, I, I could see this going so many directions. I mean, you could see a world where we have strong leadership that sort of 
encourages us all to be compassionate and to sort of be our brother's keeper, if you will. But there's another world where we kind of descend into like a, a Westworldian existence where I'm walking around and my cell phone beeps whenever I'm near somebody that has an exposure or or vice versa. And it just becomes this kind of dystopian um, panopticon in a way. Like, I don't want to get too negative about it. But yeah, I mean, we... I feel like we have the capacity to do this right, but the, the, the sort of things we need to do to nail it uh, are very difficult. So, um, yeah, I don't know if anybody has a comment on that. But I, I guess- Yeah, I, no, I, I'm too depressed to talk. <laughs> <laughs> I'm gonna, maybe I'll try to provide a, a crack of optimism here. And that is that um, we've done a lot of hard things over the last month as a community and as a country. Um, people swallowing dogmatic views, people um, working all hours of the day and night to make things happen. And I think what's starting to happen now is that these conversations of what the interim future looks like until we hopefully have a vaccine or clear better treatments. Um, I think there's consensus, especially right here among a lot of institutional leaders that we can build a framework in which the community has confidence that we're making key decisions for the right reasons at the right times, and that we're creating an environment in which people can count on being safer more confidently because we've collectively determined what the right processes are. And I think for now and for a while, and until we're in a state of the world where people are free and comfortable to not by the force of government, by the force of their own will and, and self-imposed desire to protect their safety and health, um, until they feel free to travel at will anywhere, I think a lot of our economic and living and cultural activities are going to be fairly local. So I think we can do a lot locally to help our community get past some of this when the time is right and it's safe to do so. And I think there's there are existing frameworks right now that say, you know, you need 14 days of decreased uh, cases day by day. Uh, I think criteria number two is you need to have adequate testing. And I think we're starting to see our testing capacity grow, probably not fast enough, but there's some solutions there. Number four, we've got to get our hospitals in the state where they don't need to be an emergency state to deal with these things, but they can have normal activity alongside responding to COVID. And number four, we need to have some places in our community where we know we can isolate those cases that do exist. And when we are in that state, we'll be ready to start talking about how we restore some level of activity again that feels safe and normal that Bryce talked about before. But I think I think the right people are at the table right now figuring out exactly what that looks like and how we can do it locally and statewide. All right, Grant, you brought me back from the ledge. I appreciate that. Now I just need you to, to register to run for some office again because you got me on board there. Um, anyway, Susan, reflections on that. Um, I would say to your point about uh, being our brother's keeper, et cetera, uh, something that has really absolutely blown me away is that in four weeks, people have contributed almost $500,000 to United Way's COVID emergency relief fund. And that just is, you know, that, that just shows that, um, and mo most of it from Missoula. And, and I do think that our community is really has responded well, I talked to colleagues in other parts of the state, and they're in awe of what how Missoula has been organized during this entire pandemic. And I do think that that does sort of stand us in good stead as as we move forward. So um, I feel very fortunate to be living and working in Missoula County right now. Yeah, that's for sure. Um Friends, we're getting toward the end of our time. So many things I wanted to hit. Susan, I wanted to get uh, an update. Actually, let's do that. Give us the update on housing right now. I mean, I'm reading stuff about yeah. uh, the state's emergency housing assistance program. What's the latest with regard to the housing situation? Yeah, the, that just I just saw that today. The governors um, uh, for TANF, people who are eligible for so-called welfare temporary assistance to needy families, getting some housing assistance. We just, uh, United Way, just got a $20,000 flexible fund so that frontline workers and caseworkers don't have to jump through hoops to figure out what who qualifies for what source of funding when they're trying to get people into housing. 
Um, but I haven't had time to really analyze the, the governor's um, uh, decree or, or decision, but I, I do think that that is something that, you know, I've said before on this podcast, we weren't taking care of our unhoused population before a pandemic, and it's just gotten worse, and the situation for people fleeing domestic violence or wanting to is really dire. Um, so uh, I just think yet to be seen what, yeah. what the yeah. impact. Yeah, we'll, we'll uh, okay. We'll put a pin in that. We'll come back to housing next week, and, and next week also we are hoping to have Charlie Beaton on of um, of Big Dipper fame and, and other fame. But um, Charlie was appointed to Governor Bullock's commission task force to sort of deal with some of the the additional relief, one point two five billion in business relief that's coming to the state to be distributed. I think April 24th is, is the day. The, the money's sort of scheduled to arrive, and that's when we, we will record next. Charlie will join us to talk about that task force and the challenge that it uh, is facing. Um, as we close, as we have all week or all, uh, all of these episodes, we'll sort of roundtable something we are uh, excited about and happy about. So I'll share a, a somewhat selfish one, which is that um, I finally, after many years of looking into this, put my money where my mouth is and we we installed solar panels on our roof this past week so thrilled to be going green and know that our house is uh, producing more energy than it's consuming and that's been a it's been a fun milestone as a family and a fun way to talk about science energy and the environment with our daughter in terms of our homeschooling projects i love it so many important lessons in there um and you're in a good spot up on the hill there to capture a ton of sun uh, Susan, what are you stoked about? Well, right before this, I went for a walk in the beautiful sunshine that Bryce is happy about. And even though I haven't had a haircut in seven weeks and my head looks like raccoons have been chewing on it, uh, I was really happy to get outside. And then something else, the University of Montana eSports team is doing a fundraiser for our COVID-19 fund. They're going to be gaming and raising money, and they've pledged I, they've pledged $50,000 and up to $100,000, which I think is amazing. And that gives me hope that these kids that sometimes we think that gamers are these loners in a, in a basement room, but that they're so community minded that they wanted to um, put their skills to work on behalf of their community. So I'm stoked about that. Yeah, that's awesome to hear. You know, I, I feel like esports, particularly the University of Montana, had a bit of a moment in the fall, but um, if you were ever to draw up a moment for esports to capture some uh, some sort of public uh, conception, here here we are. Um, so good for them for reaching out and collaborating yeah. with you. Uh, I got to say, the thing I am stoked about is um, you know people have responded well to these panel discussions we're having, and I think they sort of see our our episodes as an important. Um, piece of information for the community. And as such, I'm getting recommendations to um, make so many announcements and I can't possibly, we can't possibly include everyone, but I just got a quick list of some awesome things in the community to remind people about. And, 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 and by all means, I get, I'm not being exhaustive. If, if, if you're out there listening and feel like you got something awesome to contribute that I left out, let us know because we want to push out great information when we have it. I was contacted by a few different uh, naturopathic medicine providers, for example. I mean, these folks uh, serve a, a, a base of patients that are interested in alternative forms of health, and a lot of that sometimes works for the, you know, around uh, strengthening the immune system. That's something that can be very um, powerful right now. So if you're into that sort of thing, check out some of the, the awesome providers in town. There's great mental health resources available. Uh, my colleagues, John and Rita, Rita Summers Flanagan at the education school have got a great uh, happy habit series. And again, to stress here, like this is sort of low level uh, mental health, how to help you get through the day sort of stuff. But um, there are much more serious ways to deal with mental health. And if you have needs in that space, there are great resources. If you're a student, Curry Health and other uh, 
you know, professional resources in the community are, are where you can go as well. We've got that great Corona Piscine webinar I mentioned. We posted a link to that. Some awesome stuff coming out of the Natural History Center, online content for children. Uh, that's been helping with homeschool. International Wildlife Film Festival. I mean, that was sort of supposed to be happening right now. The Wild Walk is one of my absolute favorite Missoula events. They've pivoted to virtual. Susan's mentioned this before. MCT has this home theater kit for for kids to make plays at home involving parents. There's cool stuff happening with a historic museum out at Fort Missoula. I could go on and on. I can't be exhaustive in this format. Um, if if folks want to get their ideas out there, contact us. I'll try to translate them and get information out there. But so many cool things happening that um, that just sort of warm my heart to see the community being resilient and thinking of creative ways to to add value and come together. So that's what I'm stoked about this week. Um, anybody else got anything to add before we close? No, just thank you for bringing us all together. That was a great note to end on. Yeah. Well, have a great week. We'll uh, reconvene in a week. And um, until then, be safe, be well, and um, take care, everybody. Thanks for listening to A New Angle. We really appreciate it. And we're coming to you from Studio 49, a gift from University of Montana alums, Michelle and Lauren Hansen. And remember that A New Angle is supported by CED, Consolidated Electrical Distributors. These guys pretty much sell anything electrical you would ever need, but they also hire a ton of our students. If you want to learn more about jobs at CED, visit cedcareers.com. Before we go, I want to thank some important peeps. Our awesome interns, Aspen Runkle and Max Gibson. Jeff Ament, John Wicks, and VTO for the tunes. And finally, props to Jeff Meese, our master of all things sound. Finally, if you have any questions, suggestions, comments, insults, whatever, please email me at anewangle at umontana.edu. Help us spread the word, and be sure to use the hashtag anewangle when you do. Thanks a lot, and see you next time.